As uh, Pastor Mark said, my name is Matt Wood. I've had the joy of serving uh, as pastor of your daughter, Church Grace and Peace, for the last 12 years. Uh, and I have the joy of reporting to you this morning that your daughter is doing well. Uh, so thank you. Uh, you guys have been so kind to us and so generous to us. Uh, we love you. If I don't know you, I love you because you are the mother of our church, and I'm thankful for you. Uh, just a couple of things before we turn to God's Word, because I, I suppose you may want to know how things are going at Grace and Peace. So the Lord continues to add to our number. We are thankful for that. Uh, we now have uh, five elders on our session, including myself, and five deacons who are helping us to serve the Lord well. Uh, just this fall, we put a, uh, a modular building, that's a trailer, for those of you who don't know, a double-wide trailer on our property in Anna. We have five acres there the Lord blessed us with, uh, and we put that building there. So now we have office space, a place to have Bible studies, our Wednesday night prayer meeting, and then in January, we're planning to begin having an evening worship service there. Uh, and so thanks be to God. He's been very kind to us. He continues to provide for us. And we are now in the process of making plans to, to build a sanctuary on that property to be a place where the light of the gospel will go forth into Anna and the surrounding communities for uh, decades and centuries until Christ comes again, Lord willing. And so thank you for your kindness to us. It is a joy, as I said, to be here with you today uh, and a joy to open up God's word together with you. If you have your Bible or if, there, if you look at the one in the pew, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I think it says there, it's on page 964 in that pew Bible, if you grab one of those. We have been studying together first and 2 Corinthians at Grace and Peace, uh, but this, this passage with which Paul opens 2 Corinthians is a text that is timeless, uh, it is good for any time and any place, and so I desire to share it with you this morning. And so if you would please stand with me out of love and respect for God's word as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, God, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. 
Beloved, this is God's holy and inerrant word. The grass withers and the flowers fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Amen. Let me pray for us as we turn to God's word. Father in heaven, we praise your glorious name together again this morning. You are beautiful and magnificent and wondrous beyond our comprehension. Holy, 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 perfectly righteous and just, and yet also a God characterized by mercy and grace and love and your kindness you have given Christ that in him we might come before you this morning clean, holy, your beloved children to hear your word. Father, speak to us today through your word. O Spirit, open our eyes to hear and our hearts to believe. Lord, Build us up in your grace with the words of your comfort today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Paul begins this letter, the second letter that we have at least, that he wrote to the church at Corinth in a heavy but hopeful way. His greeting in verses 1 and 2 is very familiar. It's, it's pretty standard amongst his letters. If you study the letters of Paul, uh, this is similar to what he would normally say. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. He names himself an apostle, not by his own will or by their will or what they say, but by the very will of God. He tells them that Timothy is with him as he writes this letter and is helping him in his ministry. And of course, as always, he prays grace and peace for them in Christ Jesus and from God our Father. But then as he gets into the meat of this letter, it's a little bit different than most of his letters. Most often after Paul gives this greeting and he says, grace and peace to you and God and in Christ, he begins a thanksgiving. He says, I give thanks to God for you and for what God is doing in you. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So normally he would jump right into a thanksgiving. I'm thankful for you and what God is doing in you. But here he doesn't. Uh, here he jumps right into a, a section of his letter on suffering and comfort. In fact, some form of the word for affliction or suffering comes up eight times in these 11 verses that I have read for you. The word comfort comes up 10 times in these verses. And we find out why in verses 8 and 9, don't we? He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul has a recent experience of suffering fresh in his mind as he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. And he doesn't tell us the details of what this suffering and affliction was, but he describes it uh, vividly for us. He, even that word affliction is stronger than the simple word suffering. It carries in it the connotation of 
pressure, the idea of, of pressure and weight and being crushed. As Paul describes this suffering, this affliction, it is a, a crushing burden upon him. He says we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. Even to the point, he says, that he despaired of life. He thought he had received the sentence of death. I don't believe that he thought he received a sentence of death from a, a ruler, but in fact that God had given him the sentence of death. This is it. The suffering was so great that he thought that it was over. He despaired of his very life. Stop there for just a moment. I wonder how many of you have felt that weight in your life. I wonder how many of you today may be under a crushing burden in your life, a suffering or affliction that is so great that you can't see the way out, that you can't imagine that it's ever going to get better. I bet you came in here this morning with a smile on your face. When people asked you how you're doing, you said fine. But I wonder how many of you may be living under the crushing weight of illness, ailment, your body failing. I wonder how many of you are under the crushing weight of a wayward child that is walking away from Christ and you just don't know what to do about it. I wonder how many of you are despairing today because you have a, a, a marriage that is crumbling in secret. I wonder how many of you today are weighed down by the fact that you are aging and your body is failing and maybe your mind is beginning to slip and you don't want anybody to know, but it hurts. And it's weighing you down today. I wonder... How many of you young people here today may be crushed by a broken relationship, a friend that stabbed you in the back? Things that just didn't go your way and it hurts and it brings despair into your soul. And whether you're in the dark night of the soul now, whether you've been there in the past, I would guess that you will be there at some point because we live in a fallen world and we will all experience affliction and suffering at some point in this fallen world. And if it's not you, I guarantee you that you know someone who is weighed down with a crushing burden like this, or you will at some point know someone who is weighed down with a crushing, crushing burden like this. Why do I belabor this? Because I want you to understand that this text is for every one of us in this room today. Because in this text, Paul tells us what we do. What do we do when life feels this way? What do we do when life is darkness, when life is pain, when life is utterly despairing of life and burdened beyond our strength? What do we do or what do we help our brothers and sisters in Christ do when this is the description of their life? 
And he tells us three things in this text that we are to do. I think you could see them on the back of your order of worship. He tells us first that we are to look to God in the midst of our suffering. He tells us second that we are to know that our suffering has purpose. He tells us third that we are to share in one another's sufferings. So the first thing that we see here today is that we are to look to God in the midst of our suffering. And you may be saying, Matt, that sounds trite. That sounds cliche. Of course, we are supposed to look to God in the midst of our suffering. But hear me out. Let's think about what we mean when we say that we are to look to God in the midst of our suffering and Affliction. Look back at verse 2 as Paul greets the saints at Corinth. He prays for them, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the word that we have a tendency, sadly, to run right over in that phrase is God, isn't it? We are so familiar with the word God. Uh, We hear it all the time, we say it all the time, we think about God all the time, and yet how often do you slow down when you read the word God in the scriptures and say, who is God? (laughs) Who is Paul talking about when he says grace to you and peace from God? Right? He's talking about the God of creation and redemption. He's talking about Yahweh, the one true God, Lord in all caps in our Old Testament. He's talking about the God who has created all things, the universe, everything that exists is created by this, our God, by simply speaking it into existence. Psalm 147 says that God determines the number of the stars. Think about that for a second. How many stars, and he names them also, sorry, determines the number and gives them their name. How many stars can you count? (laughs) How many stars have you named? How many stars have you placed in the heavens? This is our great God who who has set the stars in the heaven and every one of them created by the word of his power. Every one of them shines in his sustaining power. The sun is perhaps the biggest and most powerful thing that we can think about, isn't it? This great burning orb that is so far away that I can't even comprehend it, and yet it warms our planet, and it lights our planet. And and what do we know about that sun? Our God, Yahweh, he spoke it into existence. He said, there will be the sun, And it will shine brightly and it will burn so hot that it could send heat light years. And do you know why the sun burns today? Because Yahweh keeps it burning. Because the one true God gives it its power. When you read the word God, Think of the God of creation, the God who spoke into being this wondrous galaxy who set this great powerful uh, sun in place that keeps us in its orbit. That's just one thing to think about, about how great and how powerful our God is. He has no beginning and no end. 
That's what the name Yahweh signifies, right? When, when the Lord reveals himself to Moses at a burning bush, actually, in a, at a bush that wasn't burned up, a fire in a bush. And in Exodus chapter three, what does he call himself? He says, I am that I am. You ever think about what that means? He's saying, I simply am. I have no beginning and I have no end. I am dependent on nothing for my existence. In fact, that picture that he gives of Moses there, it teaches us that. Why, why, Why would God reveal himself in a fire set in a bush, but the bush is not being burned up? Because God says, I am a fire that needs no fuel. (laughs) I am a being that is dependent on nothing. I have no beginning. I have no end. I am am all powerful. He holds all things together in his hands. Nothing happens that is outside of this, our God's perfect, eternal will. Nothing. Can you imagine the knowledge and the wisdom of one who knows every minute detail of every second that has ever been in time and has planned it all out from eternity and is bringing it to pass even now? He is almighty. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. He is always and everywhere present God. When you read the word God, Don't pass over it quickly. (laughs) Consider that this is the one true God. We we confessed it together earlier, didn't we? In chapter seven of the larger catechism, what is God? God is a spirit in and of himself, right? That's that he needs nothing, infinite, no bounds upon him in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. He's all sufficient, all within himself. He's eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. If it's too long to memorize, uh, cut it out of your bulletin and tape it somewhere where you will see it every day. This is your God. This is the one true God. And what does he say about himself to us? He is God, our Father. We got to slow down there too, don't we? This great God, this magnificent God, this glorious God says, I am your father and you are my beloved child. And listen, this is not a reference to God as creator, right? When the scriptures call God our father, they're not referring to the fact that he has made us and therefore he owns us. This is not a a statement for universal humanity. This is a statement for God's people, for those who are in covenant with him through Jesus Christ by his grace, who have brought us to him. In fact, Jesus taught us to call him father, didn't he? We prayed it together earlier in what we call the Lord's Prayer our Father who art in heaven. Those who belong to him through Jesus Christ are his beloved children. God, friends, this great and powerful God has welcomed you into his family through Christ. He has said, I love you. You are my child. 
any broken ideas that you have about a father or a mother from your own childhood are not present in me. I am the perfect father who loves you perfectly, who is all wise and all knowing, and who is doing what is best in your life always. Doesn't Paul teach us in a different letter in Romans that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord, right? What does that mean? It doesn't mean you get the car you want, that you get the house you want, that you get the perfect life, charmed life that you want. But it does mean that in every single circumstance of your life, the good and the bad, the easy and the difficult, the rejoicing and the suffering, you have exactly what is best for you in this moment. Why? How could, you, how could we know that? Because the one who calls us his father is the one who created everything and orders everything and holds everything together in his hands. The only one who could ever promise you everything you have is exactly what you needed, exactly when you need it, and is working for the very best good in your life. The only being in existence who could ever promise you that is the one true God, and he does. He says, I love you, and I am working what is best for you. When we look to God in the midst of suffering, it's not a trite thing. It's not, um, ah, what was that word I used earlier? It's not empty words. It's not a platitude. It's not cliche. There it is. It's not cliche. It is saying he is there, this one true God who is all-powerful and all-wise and all-knowing. It is saying he is there. He's not some idea who's out there. He's not some uh, mystical force who's floating around within the, the, the cosmos. He's not the great watchmaker who set things going and, and is just letting it do what it will do. He is the God who is there, who knows, who sees, who hears, who is active, sustaining all things in the world, even now, and we recall that this God is our Father and that He sees and He hears and He knows me and He knows exactly what I am going through and He cares and He is working what is exactly best for me in this moment. He has promised that He will never leave us nor forsake us, that He loves us and that He's working good. What a comfort! (laughs) What a comfort to know! That this great God is at work in this circumstance. So he is God, our Father. But isn't it wonderful that Paul adds in verse 3 that he's the Father of mercies. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. He is a merciful Father. This this, uh, this word, this phrase always takes me back to Exodus chapter 34 when God reveals himself to Moses. You know that story. Moses is on Mount Sinai with God and he asks God, he says, show me your glory. And what does God say? Well, you can't see my glory. I can't show it all of you. You can't look me in the face. He says, but... He says, but I will hide you in the cleft of a rock and I will pass before you and I will proclaim my name to you. What is God saying? 
God's saying, my name shows my character. It shows my glory. It shows you who I am. And what does God say as he passes before Moses to make himself known and to make his glory known? It says in Exodus 34, verses six and seven, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Did you catch where God began as he reveals himself to Moses? He began with mercy, didn't he? He spoke his name, the Lord, the Lord. He says, a God merciful and gracious. Yes, he gets to his justice, but he begins with mercy and grace. When God reveals himself, he says, I am a God of mercy and grace. Mercy, kindness is at the very core of God's being. And Paul says he is our father of mercies. This is echoed in the psalm that we sang together this morning, Psalm 103. Another thing that would be wonderful for you to either have memorized or bookmarked so that you might know who your God is in the midst of suffering and affliction. Let me read it for us again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And then hear him pick up the Lord's name. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He is a compassionate father. He knows our weakness. He knows that we are but dust. And he showers mercy upon us. Isn't it wonderful, though, that even back there in in Psalm 103, we begin to hear about Jesus. Did you notice that? How does the God who is holy, 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 perfect in holiness and justice and righteousness and truth, how does that God look upon us who have offended against him by our sin, who have, who have shaken our fist at him and said, I will be God in my own life, who have said, I will not keep your commands. I do not believe that you are good. I do not believe that you are God. I do not believe that you are worthy of authority over my life and I will do as I please. How does that God who is perfect in holiness not simply smite us with his wrath? 
How can he say he forgives all our iniquity? How can he say he redeems our life from the pit? He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy, that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west from us, that he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. How does this God look upon us with mercy and grace? It's because this God has sent forth his own son to take on flesh and to walk the earth Perfectly, no, no even shade of sin upon him. And yet he would go to a cross and the father would pour his wrath for our sins upon him. So that as Christ Jesus has taken the fullness of God's wrath for our sins upon himself, when we trust in him by grace through faith, the Lord can look at us and say, your sins are removed as far as the east is from the I will not deal with you according to your iniquities. I will deal to you, deal with you according to mercy and grace. I will sustain you. I will call you my beloved child and I will bring you into glory with me forever because Jesus gave himself for you. What a comfort. What a comfort that this great God has loved us this much and that he has done away with our sins and our iniquities. In fact, this, this, this beginning of, of verse three reminds us of another of Paul's letters, doesn't it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that remind you of? Ephesians one, right? Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen to this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have, the, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. This great God... This marvelous God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Do you understand what that means? Christ Jesus didn't die so that God would love you. He died because God loved you from eternity past. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit covenanted together, agreed together in eternity past, that Christ would come for you and give himself for you. What does it mean? It means God's love for you has no beginning. And therefore, it will have no end. Ever think about that? If God set his love upon you before time existed, It will never be removed from you for it is his eternal purpose for your life. What a comfort. Right? Thus Paul calls God the God of all comfort. Right? It's not an empty statement, is it? 
Uh, it's, it's a packed statement that, that reminds us of who God is and what he has done for us. Why is the God of all, God of all uh, why is God the God of all comfort? Because he is this great God and because he is our father and because he has loved us from eternity and will love us to eternity. He's given his own son that we might be forgiven of our sins and called his beloved children and be in communion with him now and forevermore. Beloved. <laughs> In the midst of your suffering and affliction, look to this, your great, powerful, loving, and merciful Father. Look to the benefits, the blessings that he has lavished upon you in Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the the sufferings that we suffer now, they, they, they are nothing compared to the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. That statement is not meant to belittle your suffering. And it's not meant to make light of your affliction. But it's meant to teach us that there is something so much greater. And if, and if we will get our eyes outside of ourselves and onto him, And on to the blessings he has given us in Christ Jesus, it will sustain us through anything that this life can throw at us. So we endure affliction and tribulation by looking to our God and remembering who he is. There's two more points here, and I promise they won't be as long as that one. But they are important. And so secondly, we can endure suffering and affliction by knowing that our suffering has purpose. It is never in vain. I've already spoken to this a little bit, but we know, how do we know? How can you know that whatever you are going through now, whatever you will go through in this life, whatever your loved one is going through is not in vain. It is not empty. It is not for no purpose, but in fact, it has a very good purpose. We can know this because again, our God is sovereign and he is our loving father. And whatever crosses our path is what he wants to cross our path. Nothing, beloved, hear me, nothing comes into your life that your loving Father does not want in your life. Some caveats to that statement, right? God's revealed will would say there's things that he doesn't want in our life, but God's eternal purpose in that way, nothing comes into your life that he does not want you to face for your good and that you might grow through it, and that he might conform you to the image of his son. Did you ever look at that? At Romans 8, 28, we love, right? All things work together for good. What does good mean? Well, you gotta look at verse 29 to know what good means. He says, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is good, right? That is God's good for your life. And everything he brings to your life is working toward that purpose, to conform you to the image of Christ Jesus. We can't always know all of the purposes that God has for our suffering. They could be manifold. He could be teaching us any number of things or working in someone else's life through our suffering and our affliction. We can't always know exactly what the purpose is, but there are two things that Paul shows us in our text that we can always know God is doing in us through suffering and 
affliction. The first one is that He is teaching us to rely not on ourselves, but upon Him. Look back at verses 8 and 9. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of, life, of death, but, right, those glorious uh, conjunctions in the Apostle Paul, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God brings suffering and affliction into our lives to remind us that we cannot be self-dependent. We are not made to live life in our own strength. And listen to me, that is not an effect of the fall. Sometimes we might think it is, but it's not. Humanity in its perfect goodness was meant to depend upon God in all things. God is life for us. The problem is that in our sinful pride, we try to live life in our own strength. We try to provide for ourselves. We try to be wisdom for ourselves. We try to be strength for ourselves, no matter what the circumstance might be. We, in fact, we don't just try. We demand it, don't we? I will be independent. I will be strong. I will do this my way. And God in his kindness, because even as we are converted to Christ Jesus, that tendency remains in us, doesn't it, beloved? If you don't know it of yourself, open your eyes. It is there. And the Lord in his kindness and in his mercy and for the very best in our life brings us things we can't bear to teach us that we must have him to draw us, to throw ourselves at his feet and plead for his grace and his mercy and his strength and his deliverance. And look, I, this, is, this is personal experience, okay? I'm not sure I can point to a Bible verse on this, but let me share this with you and take it however you want. Don't double down on your independence in the midst of suffering and affliction. Because my experience is that when I double down and decide I'm gonna get through it, I'm gonna grunt my way through it myself, God turns up the heat. It usually gets worse. Not because he's capricious, not because he wants to shove it in my face, but because he loves me. And he wants me to know that I desperately need him every moment of every day. Beloved, know that whatever your affliction is, whatever your suffering is, whatever your pain is, God is, is crying out to you, come to me. Throw yourself upon my mercy anew today. Get on your knees and plead for my help. I will receive you. I love you. I will help you. The second thing that God is always teaching us or always worrying, second, let me, sorry, let me say it this way, second purpose that is always there in our suffering and affliction is that we are being trained to have 
compassion upon others as they suffer and go through affliction. And in fact, we are being trained to help them through their suffering and their affliction. This is clearly a major point for Paul here. Look at verse 4. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Our suffering, beloved, always serves the purpose of helping others with the comfort that we have received by helping us to walk alongside someone who is also suffering, particularly someone who's suffering what we have suffered in the past. We all know that words of comfort from someone who's been through the same thing, they just carry more weight than someone who doesn't know what I'm going through. We can all, that's not to say don't try to comfort. Comfort everybody, any chance you get, be with your brothers and sisters. But my point is to ask you a question. Are you willing to be used in this way? Are you willing to selflessly share your suffering with others? to pull back the mask and let others know the affliction that you have known so that they can see that the Lord has carried you through it and that he will carry them through it as well so that you might be a comfort to others or are you selfishly harboring your suffering and affliction Maybe afraid of what people will think of you if they know what you've been through. Maybe afraid of not knowing exactly what to say in the moment with someone. Or are you willing to be used of the Lord, your great God of comfort and mercy and grace? Are you willing to be used in the lives of these people around you by sharing what you have gone through and sharing the comfort that God gave you in the midst of it so that you might say, he too will help you. That is, friends, a certain purpose of your suffering. And so we know that our suffering is not in vain. It carries a purpose. It's to to draw us to depend upon the Lord. It's to be used in the lives of other people. The third thing that we see here ties in with that one, but that we must share in one another's suffering. The Lord would never have a Christian suffer alone. Never. We are the body of Christ When one member suffers, the whole body suffers. When one member rejoices, the whole body rejoices. The Lord would never have us to suffer in isolation. He would never have us to let anyone else suffer in isolation. 
Right, isn't that an interesting thing that Paul says in verse 5? For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Isn't it marvelous that Paul says that when we suffer, we share in Christ's suffering? Commentators will differ on exactly what Paul means there. Does it have to be persecution for the sake of Christ to count as sharing in Christ's sufferings? I don't think so. Isaiah called Christ the man of sorrows. Christ knew affliction and suffering in his life. And as we suffer, we identify with the man of sorrows. And Christ identifies with us in our suffering, doesn't he? What does he say to this very Paul on the road to Damascus when Paul is converted and, and Christ appears to him as blinding light? What does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, why are you persecuting me? Christ models this for us. Sharing our suffering by saying, when, not, when my people suffer, I suffer. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that we have a sympathetic high priest. He is with us in our suffering, he knows our weakness, and he beckons us to come to his boldly to his throne of grace because we can know that he knows suffering. Because he has entered into our suffering. He has shared in it by becoming a human and walking through this broken world. Friends, the first thing that you must do with your sufferings is share them with Christ your Savior. He beckons you to come boldly to his throne and says he gets it, he understands, he loves you. And he will give you grace for your time of need. But also we must share our sufferings with one another. Paul says we suffer the same sufferings. Isn't that an interesting phrase? I don't think he means they're exactly the same, but he's saying we are all suffering in this fallen and broken world. We are all suffering the effects of sin in this life. We all have suffering in our lives. We share in them. We must share our sufferings with one another, beloved. We must never try to suffer alone. We must never let another person suffer alone. This is contrary to God's will for his people. It is contrary to his will for his church. And so again, I will ask you more pointedly, as you are in suffering today, as you are facing various afflictions, various degrees of affliction in your life today, are you hiding your sorrows from these, your closest family in Christ Jesus? From these, your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you allowing your pride perhaps, to not let you let down the guard and say, it's so hard, <laughs> help me. 
Are you allowing the shame of whatever you are going through to keep you from sharing it with these? I don't want to be harsh on that, friends, but I do want to tell you that shame and darkness just multiplies. But when you would share it with your brothers and sisters in Christ and allow them to pray with you and allow them to comfort you with the good news of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him, the Lord would use that to cleanse you, to renew you, to refresh you the joy of his salvation. Are you willing to share with one another? And then one more, one more. Are you willing to enter into the suffering of those around you? Because I know the excuses. That's going to be time consuming. That's going to be emotionally draining. I'm not going to know the words to say. I've got to put boundaries in my life. The boundaries thing is not totally bad, but in the body of Christ, we help. Period. Are you willing to enter into the suffering of your brothers and sisters in Christ to pass along the comfort that you have in him? And the last thing I'll say here is to look at verse 11 and say that we must be praying for one another and that that's not empty and that that's not cliche either. What does he say in verse 11? You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Isn't it amazing what Paul says there? Number one, he says it's non-negotiable. We must be praying for one another. But he also says there very plainly that God works through the prayers of his people. How is the blessing granted? Through the prayers of many. Sometimes we as reformed people are afraid to say things like that. <laughs> we can't change God's mind. He is unchangeable. And prayer is all about, you know, aligning us with his will. And those things are true. But God says here, his Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says, your prayers work. He says, God works through your prayers. He has ordained that he would work through your prayers for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ for their comfort in suffering and in affliction, for the Lord's grace in their lives. Pray for one another. Do not skip over this. But when someone shares their suffering and affliction, go, media, go immediately to the throne of grace and ask for God's help, for he has said he will work through your prayers. And so, beloved, as we find ourselves in the throes of affliction and suffering, or as we find ourselves with the, the glorious opportunity of walking through that with one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, let us do these three things. Let us look to our great God and remember that He is there and that He is our loving Father and that He is working good for us in all things. Let us, let us remember that our suffering always has purpose of drawing us nearer to Him and helping us to comfort others. Let us share in one another's suffering. Let us not selfishly turn away, but let us enter in. Let us take down the masks 
and let us share in one another's pain. Let me pray and ask the Lord that he would help us to live in this way. O God, our Father, we praise again your glorious name, for we know that you are the great God of creation, that you have set all things into being by the word of your power, that you hold them together in your perfect wisdom and understanding and and almightiness. O God, we praise your glorious name, and we are humbled and even dumbfounded that you, this great God, would look upon us tiny, insignificant human beings and say that you would love us and that you would draw us into your family through Christ and make us your beloved children so that we can cry out to you, Abba, Father, and know that you hold us in your loving embrace, to know that you never sleep nor slumber, but are always watching and protecting and providing and working what is best for us in everything. God, drive that truth deep into our hearts and knead it in by your spirit and by your grace so that we might know it and so that we might believe it. And so our immediate response to, to suffering and affliction and pain is to look to you and say, oh, great God, I know that you are in this. Help me, sustain me. God, would you crush our pride and make us willing to share our sufferings for the good of one another and for your glory. Do give us words to say that point to you and to you alone as the answer to Christ and the benefits that we have in him. God, I pray for Redeemer Church, that this church would be a church that exhibits this love and care and sharing in affliction and joys with one another and that the world around might see and might marvel at it and might say, what is that? How do you have that? And that your people might be able to invite them to the hope that we have in Christ, the joy that we have in Christ, the certainty that we have in Christ. And in this way, that your kingdom would grow in the earth and you would be glorified. He asks these things through Christ our Savior. Amen.